Hi, this is Dr. Steve Elias, and welcome to another podcast of Vein Magazine, also known as Vein Specialists Sitting Around Talking, Having Drinks. Today's episode is on lymphedema and phlebolymphedema. It is sponsored by Tactile Medical, a company that's dedicated to improving the lives of patients with lymphedema right at home. Many of Tactile's products can be used by patients in their own home, so they do not need to travel back and forth for treatment. Listen while we speak with Dr. Tom Maldonado from New York University, a vascular surgeon, Dr. Peter Pappas, also a vascular surgeon from the Center for Vein Restoration in New Jersey, and Tom Rook, a vascular medicine specialist from the Mayo Clinic. We speak about the modern management of lymphedema and really the emerging concept of phlebolymphedema. This is done from diagnosis to the treatment, including the products manufactured by Tactile Medical. Take a listen. Okay, so welcome to another podcast sponsored by Vein Magazine, or also known as Vein Specialists Sitting Around Talking, Sometimes Having Drinks, because right now it's only about 4.40 in the afternoon at the Expert Venus Management Meeting, and we're waiting to have drinks around uh, 6 o'clock tonight. So this will be a drinkless podcast, as far as we know. Who do we have with us today is Peter Pappas from the Center for Vein Restoration, Tom Rook from the Mayo Clinic, and Tom Maldonado from NYU in New York. And our topic today is lymphedema. That's where we're starting, and we may wind up in some other areas as well. So, Tom, do patients come to you and say, I have lymphedema, or do you say to them, you have lymphedema? Well, it used to be that no one would ever show up even knowing what lymphedema is, and that's still the situation most of the time. But I'm surprised that more and more patients are at least hearing the words and coming in and asking about it on occasion. Peter, what about you? So in my experience, that's about 50-50. I get half of the patients coming in saying, I've had this lymphedema and I can't do anything to manage it. And then the other half of the group don't know what the cause of the swelling is and looking and asking for answers. So it's about 50-50 in my practice. And Tom, do you get sent to you people who have just swelling and nobody knows what the swelling is? And then what percentage would you say wind up being due to lymphedema? Right. So I think it's, it's an interesting question, right? Because lymphedema is really a spectrum and it, it spans the classic primary lymphedema and those are the patients who may have a, an ongoing diagnosis where they've known for years, maybe as a, as a young person, someone's told them they have lymphedema and they're sometimes quite desperate. They come to many doctors, sometimes looking for that sort of holy grail solution. And then those patients who have swelling and it's not really characterized and that's the sort of spectrum of phlebolymphedema or venous swelling that sort of spills into lymphatic disease. And so I think that's probably the majority of my patients are the patients who have swelling, hasn't been well characterized, don't necessarily have a diagnosis of lymphedema, but they have this phlebolymphedema where they have venous disease uh, leading to swelling and, and compromised lymphatics. So. All right. And what would you say, I mean, give that, you know, our listeners and our readers perhaps, though, Tom, we'll go with you. When you see somebody that you clinically feel as lymphedema, what is your, in quote, non-invasive or invasive workup? So I think that, of course, sort of soup to nuts, you know, the swelling, of, we're going to rule out the, the dangerous things, the systemic things. If it's, if it's certainly if it's bilateral, we're going to start looking at systemic causes of swelling whether renal, cardiac, uh, hepatic, all those things. But assuming that's all been uh, ironed out, then I would do a vascular study, a venous duplex in the office. Because in fact, as I said, there's sometimes a concomitant venous problem. And we really want to identify that because that can be treated or, or certainly be intervened for 
So that's a sort of a diagnostic study I do in, in the office in addition to good history and physical. But once that's all been established and, and perhaps even intervened for, I think I really educate the patient is really what I do. I spend most of my time just educating the patient. A lot of these patients are sort of hopeless. They've been, as I said, doctor shopping and maybe looking for answers. And I think explain to them that there's, there are some things they themselves can do with, insofar as uh, either physical therapy or pneumatic compression, which I'm sure we'll get to. That empowers the patients quite a bit. And I think that's a lot of what I talk to them about. So, Tom, swollen leg comes into your office. Unilateral, let's say, because we, we all agree. Bilateral, yes, it could be lymphedema and sometimes it is. But let's say unilateral leg swelling. What makes you think this may be a lymphatic component to the problem versus anything else on the exam or, and or the history? Let's give people like, how can you first start to think about it? I do think that about 90 to 95% of the time, a unilateral swelling is going to be either venous or lymphatic disease. There's just a few other exceptions. So one of the very first things that makes you think lymphatic is absence of obvious venous disease. People with lymph edema, especially the primary type, but some of the minimally triggered secondary types typically don't have any sign of venous abnormalities. It's extremely common for them to have not just no varicose veins, but small veins, not only on the affected limb, but everywhere else. So absence of venous findings would be the first thing. The second thing, obviously, on the physical examination is signs or evidence consistent with lymphedema. Now, unfortunately, those are not sensitive findings. Early lymphedema is looks like everything else, but when things become more advanced, the inability to pinch skin at the base of the second toe, the stemmer sign, is something that we see. Often you can find have nail findings, for example, that'll tune you into what's going on and that it's lymphedema. So the examination, if consistent with lymphedema, I think is one of the strongest things that we have. But remember, it's not very sensitive. Okay. So now, Peter, so you want to comment on that? And I'm going to ask you I do, because I think one of the other important parts is the history. So for example, if you see a young teenager who comes into the office and said, you know, I've just started to have this unilateral swelling two years ago, and it coincides with the beginning of their menses, that's pretty classic for lymphedema precox when you see that in a teenager. In a middle-aged or older person, you know, you start worrying about acquired things that may have caused it. So yeah, I always feel better on the physical exam if you see the buffalo hump on the dorsum of the foot or if you do see a, a stemmer sign, that makes you feel a little bit better that you have the diagnosis. But I also think there's a lot that you can get out of the history. And then there's things you need to rule out because you want to make sure that they don't have some mass that, you know, may be compressing them unilateral that may be causing this swelling as well. It's rare, but still you can get most of that from the history if you just listen to what they're saying. So now clinically you say this person has lymphedema, you have done your venous studies, they're normal as Tom Rook said that the, they, most of the times they are. Do you do anything further diagnostically? So I don't. And this is a frequent question that we get from the patients. I'm not a big fan of lymphocentigraphy because I really don't think it's going to change the management, you know, I'm not in the habit of ordering tests if I don't think it's going to alter what I'm going to do for them. My clinical examination usually is, is what I go by. So I don't order any additional tests other, unless I have a clinical suspicion based upon something that I found in a physical exam. Like if I want to rule out a mass, for example, that may be compressing, then I'll maybe do more, but that's very, very infrequent. Tom Aldonado, what, what do you yeah, do? I 100% agree. I think that certainly in today's era of sort of medical economic and being frugal, I think you have to be cost conscious. So I, I don't do that. I do think in some patients though, when I'm concerned about a pelvic mass, some compression syndrome, I do look for that. 
either May Thurner's or, or something else. I do take a little bit, maybe I just disagree a little bit about, I think that it's important we distinguish primary lymphedema, which I agree with Tom and Peter is 100%. But then this other flebal lymphedema is, is a whole nother animal, so to speak. And I think that's where you have this sort of spectrum of venous disease spilling into lymphatics. So for the strictly speaking, primary lymphedema, 100%, all the history and physical findings we discussed. I don't do lymphocentigraphy as well for that reason. I don't think it's going to change what you do. Don't you think every patient that comes in with the clinical diagnosis of lymphedema needs a non-invasive venous evaluation? I do. I do. I think that not only that, but some of those patients have lymphedema and concomitant venous disease. When you treat their venous disease, some of those do get better. And we have a nice little study we did where we looked at a cohort of patients who had simultaneous venous disease. Uh, sometimes venous ablations would help them and they, they responded better to pneumatic compression afterwards as well. So I think there's overlap there. I think when it comes to lymphocentigraphy, I'm probably more generous with doing these than the other folks. And I think that's partly because the practice I have is kind of a, a court of last appeals. But the implications of a lymphedema diagnosis are in many ways devastating. This is an incurable condition for most patients. And if you're going to make that diagnosis, often it's a little more reassuring to the patient that you can show them that, you know, in cases where the lymphocinogram is positive, that you can you could be very confident that you've made the right diagnosis. Does it change anything I do? Almost never. So what is the uh, the first therapeutic thing that you institute into person that you're 100% confident? This is, we're going to not talk about the, the venous component for a second, but the 100% pure lymphedema. What is your... Yeah. Very conventional, old-fashioned therapy. We've gone through all kinds of things over the years, but it's emerged that our first line of therapy is primarily leg elevation, and most importantly, aggressive elastic compression or inelastic compression with low stretch wraps as a means of limb reduction. Maintenance is a separate issue, but the first thing we do is try to reduce the limb. If you don't get the limb reduced first, anything else you try to do to maintain size is pretty much useless. All right, Peter, is that it? No, I mean, the spectrum is decongestive therapy first so that you can get them to the point where they can be put into maintenance therapy. I always discuss manual lymphatic drainage with them, but I think that's a good initial step for decompression. I don't think it's a long-term solution in terms of putting them in maintenance therapy. What I tell the patients is my goal is to first decongest, get you in an inelastic garment. But what I really like to do is when they're at home, I like to put them in a pneumatic compression pump. And the pneumatic compression pump at night you know, helps prepare them for the evening when their legs are in the supine position. So when they stand up in the morning, their legs are decompressed as possible, which in my opinion helps the maintenance therapy of the inelastic stocking work and become more effective. So those are the primary therapies that I move the patients towards. Tom, Baldonado, go talk about the, what you do. So I think one thing we should also just pause and talk about is cellulitis. I do sort of spend some time educating themselves of the risk of cellulitis and how that they should take that seriously because, of course, that's one of the main reasons people end up in the hospital for this when they have this condition. But aside from that, I think that I agree. I, I do start trying to aggressively decompress them with either MLD, manual lymphatic drainage. But I think pneumatic compression, especially when you talk about the low-pressure sequential compression like FlexiTouch, I think that's the device I tend to favor because of the lower pressure and the truncal piece, which is also important to recognize when some of these patients have swelling more proximally, especially if they've had, for instance, surgeries or radiation, cancer diagnosis. This, these are the ones who really benefit from that truncal piece. And so I think that in addition to helping them therapeutically, 
to Tom's point, it offers us almost a psychiatric sort of advantage to them. They're, they're desperate people who, when they're giving that diagnosis, don't know where to turn. I think this really empowers them to have something they can do. You know, there's nothing like being hostage to go to a physical therapist, as wonderful as they are and as helpful as they are, when you have to make that trip twice a week to the physical therapist you become very dependent. I think uh, it's not practical. So the pneumatic compression is really my mainstay. Right. And don't you think if you're going to do it, I mean, you said going to a a physical therapist twice a week. I mean, the disease does not take a day off. That's right. So that something they can use at home, like Peter said, you know, such as, like you said, FlexiTouch does help in terms on a daily basis. Now, just run me through what is the time commitment to the patient? When they're going to say they're going to say, yeah, I, I want to use this Flexi Touch at home or, or some intermittent pneumatic compression device. What is their commitment time-wise? I usually also sort of recommend the evening. I think it's a good time when they've sort of come home and they're sort of unwinding and 45 minutes is generally a standard treatment. If it's bilateral, it may take longer, but it's 45 minutes uh, at the end of the day, I think is generally what people are most compliant with. And what's interesting about the Flexi Touch in particular is that their new generation devices will have monitors that measure compliance because as we all know, one of the criticisms of some of these uh, trials that we do, the SOX trial and others for post-thrombotic syndrome or, or what have you, is the patient's lack of compliance. And so that's always sort of that unknown as to how compliant they are. But the newer generation devices will have monitors that will track that, which is going to be very interesting to sort of follow. So, Now, Tom, Rook, you didn't jump in initially saying that this is where you go to with any kind of device for the patient. Do you ever use these type of things? Do you think there's a role? Right. Absolutely. You know, in my practice, most of the patients that I see coming for the first time with lymphedema have relatively mild lymphedema. And all that may be necessary in those patients is to downsize the leg and then control it with elastic compression because even patients who use pumps are going to need elastic compression. We try the easy things first. If that fails... The next line of therapy that we go to now is almost always pump therapy. We went through a long phase of trying manual lymphatic drainage and, you know, the complex decongestive therapies, but that hasn't been as simple or as easy or probably as effective as using the new generation of pumps. Yeah. I mean, what I have found is the patients also, they like using some pump at home because they feel they have a input into their care. It's their commitment to their own care as well. It's not like they can't do anything. They always ask you, you know, what can I do? And that's part of their uh, commitment. Peter, combined venous and lymphatic component. And how do you decide, do I need to attack the venous? Do I need to leave the venous alone? Any thoughts on that? So phlebolymphedema is, is real. I mean, all of us who've taken care of these patients have seen it before, but it can oftentimes be a difficult diagnosis. One of the things that I found comforting or that helps you make the diagnosis is if you have a chronic lymphedema patient who comes and tells you something is different now. I don't have my normal usual swelling. I feel tense. It feels heavy. And those patients, when I've done pelvic ultrasounds, more often than not, I'll find a new outflow obstruction in the iliac system. Uh, and when I've treated them, when you, when you look at the legs clinically, they don't look very much different in terms of edema reduction. Well, the difference is the patients feel different. They say that pain that I felt is gone, the tense heaviness is is not there, and their activity levels increase. So if you the diagnosis is a little difficult, but once you make it in the chronic patient, there is there is a clinical difference that you see in their performance and their activity levels. Tom, talk a little bit more about this this component. The paper that to me is most fascinating is this Rasmussen paper looking at lymphocytography with seep classification and correlating that as we increase, even at lower seep classifications, we do have dermal stasis and pooling in lymphatics. And there are beautiful pictures that you can look up on this. And 
And I think that that to me is sort of the proof positive that this is in fact a real phenomenon. And I think that the thing we all have to focus on is catching it at an early stage. You know, to see the patient that comes in with more advanced disease, it may be an easier diagnosis, but I think we're going to help the patients more when we catch it at the early stage. So I'm a big proponent of using pneumatic compression, even at lower sort of clinical suspicion. You know, when you have some swelling, I do treat the central stenosis. I I agree 100% that they do have relief of symptoms when you address the venous component. But I think that we should acknowledge that when you have venous phlebo lymphedema, it's been shown. You do these lymphocytograms and you can see the, the dermal stasis there. So Yeah. And I think if you have a significant, you know, proximal obstruction, I mean, a lot of people, we don't want people just throwing stents in now just because they see some obstruction in a patient with lymphedema. But if you have something that's pretty impressive and then trying to use, you, you think trying to pump, I understand the lymphatic tissue gets back differently than the, the lymph gets back differently than the venous return. But do you think there's a component there that's congesting? So to pump, just use a pump against somebody that has a real iliac stenosis is just not going to work as well as if you take out that stenosis. What do you think, Tom Maldonado? Yeah, I don't know. I I think that it's still probably a lot of work has to be done to look at the the mechanism of this. But the way I see it is simply a you know, an inflow problem. You know, you have a lot of venous congestion and that's that's overwhelming the lymphatics. And I think if we can decompress that with venous stenting if, if in certain cases or or with compression stockings, which obviously are going to help venous uh, stasis as well, it's going to also offload the lymphatic congestion. So I think there are two sides of the same coin is the way I like to describe them. And I think treating one will also treat the other. So one of the clinical entities I've always found fascinating in the patients who have iliac outflow disease but have a component of limb swelling is that the response to the stenting in terms of the edema reduction is variable. Some patients you see almost an immediate response, but most of the patients, it takes three to six months for them to see some kind of edema reduction. It's almost as though the lymphatic system is stunned in some way. And uh, some patients don't even recover fully. They'll get a partial response to it. So there's a lot about the lymphatics system in terms of iliac outflow disease that we don't know. The other clinical scenario that I find difficult is then you have somebody who has a lot of lower extremity swelling, then we do the duplex scan and you see reflux in the saphenous vein. And you always wonder how much of that is due to the vein part and how much of it is due to the lymphatic part. And again, you see variable responses oftentimes. So I find those patients, that's frustrating to um, diagnose what's the the cause and what the right thing is for them. Yeah. Tom, Rook, do you send people for any type of venous procedures when you think there's a component of venous to the lymphatic problem? Or do you think it's not as common? Oh, I think when I believe that I'm dealing with lymphedema as a significant component of the swelling, I will do anything I can to treat alternative possible contributing factors. So if anything, my threshold for sending people for venous evaluation and or venous treatment is probably lower than it is in people who I think may have purely venous swelling, for example. All right, let me give you guys a clinical scenario. So somebody comes in clinically, they have uh, lymphedema. You do a venous study because we all said we want to do a venous study. Iliacs are fine. And you have a six millimeter saphenous vein with uh, three seconds of reflux and minimal varicosities coming from it. So Tom Maldonado. So proximal, no iliac disease, six millimeter refluxing vein, about three seconds and no varicosities coming from it. Is that the kind of person we should ablate? And symptoms of swelling and and lymphedema-like symptoms. Lymphedema, clinically lymphedema. Yeah, we looked at this, and we have, you know, about 15, 16% of our patients that we looked in our retrospective study with FlexiTouch had this type of scenario, and when we ablated, those were the cohort that did best, actually. So I really believe that 
although ablation for saphenous vein reflux is a little bit of a controversy sometimes as far as impacting swelling per se in the absence of varicose veins, I think those patients who have that flebal lymphedema are particularly benefited by it. Right. And I, so I would I would ablate that. But yeah, think, and that's yeah. that's exactly consistent with the position I took a moment ago. That uh, if anything, my threshold for intervening is probably even lower when I think there's lymphedema involved. Peter, so I'd like to ask a theoretic question. So I think we all agree that we should ablate that saphenous vein in the hopes that it may help alleviate some of the lymphatic problems. But the lymphatics parallel the venous system. So if you use a thermal technology there, are you potentially damaging? those lymphatics that are already maybe non-functioning. Should we be using non-thermal technologies in that situation? So I'd be curious to hear what Tom Rook and Maldonado think. I think that's true. We all have a few patients in our practice that had some early lymphedema. In retrospect, we didn't, and we ablated their saphenous, and they in fact got worse, but we did it with the thermal. And I think you bring up an excellent point, Peter, is now with non-thermal, you're not worried about damaging the surrounding lymphatics. And I think I would be more prone to to use a non-thermal. But, I mean, what do you guys think? I mean, anecdotally, the very first patient I treated with a flexi-touch device was exactly that patient, someone who had a thermal ablation and was doing just fine, minding her own business, wanted her legs to look a little bit better, had some varicose veins, and all of a sudden her legs swelled up. And I'm convinced temporarily anyway that there was some correlation there. And perhaps that's interesting to think about as maybe that not enough tumescence was given, maybe. Um, maybe the, the thermal ablation was was just, you know, wasn't concentrated enough to the vein. So I think it's fascinating to think of a non-thermal way of ablating the vein as maybe protecting against that. Yeah. I think it's a very rare patient. I don't think that the message should be that thermal ablation is going to predispose you to lymphedema. I think the opposite is true. I think that in general, most patients will benefit from it, even with a thermal technique, if done properly. But if we have an alternative that's non-thermal, I think there's some theoretical advantage. Yeah, I think so. Now let's talk about a little more surgical. When do we send these patients for something surgical? I'm not talking about debulking surgeries. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, some type of micro, you know, phenolymphatic anastomosis and stuff. Tom Rook, you're shaking well, your head. Yeah, I'm not a interventionalist. I'm not a surgeon. And I'm also not impressed that the direct lymphatic revascularization procedures are effective or durable at this point. So I don't know of any of them that I have surgeons that I can refer to that I believe are going to make a big difference. So that's a that's a court of last re resort for me. You don't have any surgeons you can refer to? Not or? anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. Okay. Well, I happen to have a list of three surgeons here that, that Mark Meisner gave me because uh, there's someone in Plastic Surgeon University of Washington he works with, and Mark feels, and so does this surgeon, feel that intervening in early lymphedema does make a difference for these people. I'm, I'm not saying, I, again, I agree with you. I haven't sent that, that many people to it. Peter, what are your thoughts about this? So there were two recent papers that were published from Japan looking at these uh, antacide venolymphatic and microanastomoses. The problem is the endpoint. It's a very difficult thing to quantify as to what is improvement and what's not improvement. Most of these venolymphatic anastomoses that they do actually occlude. So they actually, from what I read in the paper, they do anywhere between 20 and 40 of these anastomoses and about a third of them occlude almost immediately. Uh, and then to me, it's really not that clear that there's a functional improvement. So although we're technically able to do the operation, I'm not sure that it results in a functional improvement for the patients. Anything, Tom? 
Maldonado. I think interesting you mentioned Japan because that's where a lot of this publications are coming from. Actually, I've reviewed a number of these papers, and one of the critiques I always have of those papers is that the the endpoints are sort of surrogate endpoints, right? Well, does your swelling improve? But as far as monitoring patency of these very microscopic anastomoses. They can't. There's no good duplex study that's going to tell you that the lymphovenolymphatic anastomosis is patent. So even when they say a third, it probably, what they mean there is on table, they can see that they had 30% failure rate. That's why they do so many because they have so many that fail on table. They spend all day doing these. So I think that it's, it's potentially the future. And I think that there may very well be a role for this. But the downside, of course, everyone asks is, well, are you doing more damage than good by making incisions all over an extremity, right? No, I know. I mean, that's our hesitation is not to not to do this. Most, all of us here, we haven't had very good experience and maybe because the technology or the technique has not gotten to that point. Let me ask you guys kind of a, in closing, we'll give it like another five minutes or so. It does seem like lymphedema, lymphatic problems, flebo lymphedema, whatever you want to call it, is becoming more of a, we're talking much more about it. Okay. The American College of Phlebology changed the name. We changed it to the American Vein and Lymphatic Society. And for instance, at the, that annual meeting, at least, we're going to have a huge component of speaking about lymphedema. So why do you think this has come? I mean, lymphedema is not getting more prevalent. Why do you think we're, we're talking so much more about it? Well, that's time for talk. And then you pitch. This is a phenomenon that we've seen in all types of medicine ever since I've been practicing. And that is that we tend to be uninterested with entities until we can treat them. And I think what's happening is that we're seeing an increase in our ability to treat this or at least think that we're treating it in, for example, a case of some of the surgical procedures. And as we begin to find more ways to treat it, suddenly the interest booms. Yeah. And it's not just invasive treatment. It's all like Thomas quoting all the, you know, intermittent compression devices as well. Or we're, they're better than they were. They're getting better results. There's good data on, you know, a lot of them, like you mentioned, the flexi touch and stuff, you're getting better data that you can make an impact on people. Whereas 20 years ago, we didn't have these kind of devices. We didn't understand the disease as well either. So a lot of this has to do with focusing on the disease. So in 1995, when I won the, the first Jobs Award, the intention was to develop a new generation of leaders who would focus on the underlying mechanisms and raise the quality of research they were, they were doing in venous disease to match what was being done in arterial disease. In 2010, when I was the president of the AVF, my invited speaker was a lymphatic specialist who was doing basic science research in Texas. So I think the name change of the society is, is another iteration of that step to try to raise awareness. And I would also add that they've also changed the, the fellowships to the Venus and Lymphatic Medicine Fellowship. So also, you know, raise awareness and also focus more attention in the hopes of generating a group of leaders or a group of young people who will be interested in making this a career, not only at the clinical level, but at the basic science level, so we can make some improvements or, or take the next step, if you will, in the treatment of the disease. Right. And we really are the ones, those of us taking care of, you know, vein problems, we are the ones that see these swollen legs most of the time. When everybody else can't figure out what's going on, we get the swollen leg sent to us. And there's a huge component. So I think we do need to own this disease more than anybody else because nobody else is going to understand the whole process and the intermingling with the venous component as well. So go ahead, Tom. So the other, the other reason I think there is some relevance to the sort of high profile of this is because there's a health and economics piece to it, which is that in the days where length of stay and, and early discharge to the hospital and avoiding discharge to the hospital is very important that the, there is a real, you know, one of the bottom lines here is readmissions with cellulitis. 
And in fact, there's been a number of papers now out specifically with FlexiTouch showing that there's lower instance of readmissions for cellulitis, lower cellulitis admissions to the hospital. And that translates into dollars, right? So I think there's a real interest, not just patient interest, but I think societies and governmental bodies are very interested in this for that reason. Right. And that's why as the data becomes you know, better, more robust, that's why insurers are covering these things because they realize there's a benefit to the patients. They don't have to come in the hospital and not get them out. You know, multiple episodes of cellulitis and, and blah, 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 blah. So to finish up, what is it that we need next to manage the disease? Ah, Peter just handed it to Rook because he wants time to think. Tom, what do you think, Rook? Well, I think pump coverage. We still have issues on those patients that we think need pumps. We still run into problems, you know, a lot of paperwork, a lot of red tape in being able to get them. So that would be my number one on my wish list. Okay, Tom Maldonado? Yeah, that would be my number one, two, and three. I think that there's, you know, uh, real roadblocks. It's very regional across the country. Some pockets of the country are easier than others, but it's a big problem, big headache. And again, that's why some of this research that we're doing, looking at the health and economics becomes so important because inevitably when I give a talk on this, someone in the audience will say, well, did you know how much it costs, how many of these pumps cost? And in fact, it's a money saver when you look at cellulitis and some of the readmissions. So that's something that the message just has to be hammered home to all the policymakers. Right. So clearly the short-term answer is that we need to have what available technologies we have made available to the patients. Access to those technologies is the number one obstacle right now. The long-term solution is is going to have to be through research. So we're going to have to find a way to either stimulate lymphatic growth or finding some kind of way to help the lymphatics that are there function more efficiently. But that's a long-term 10, 20-year project. Right now, what we need to focus on, we do have technologies that work, patients aren't getting access to them because of government red tape and regulation. Yeah, I mean, right. And we're right now in the short term, we're treating the complications of the disease. We're not figuring out a way to, to primarily treat the disease itself. And, and who knows if we're ever going to get to that point. But, but I mean, obviously, that would be the best point to get to. So I also think, you know, we need to, like Tom said, as people feel they can do something about a disease, they become more comfortable. I think societies and industry need to work together to get the other practitioners to understand that don't just say, uh, you know, just put some compression on and go away, that there's things we can do. And these people are really happy when you help them. Tom Maldonado, you're smiling. Yes. No, I, I think so. I think it, again, the other piece is patient awareness, right? So it's one thing we wonder why they don't respond when they have very advanced disease and, they, and there's a lot of fibrosis and duration and the lymphatics are, are burnt. But if you intervene early on these people, it may seem extreme to recommend pneumatic compression when you have some just sort of moderate swelling and not the classic elephantiasis. But that's exactly when you want to intervene yeah. because that's really the time when you're going to interrupt the sort of the downward spiral of this disease. And, and that's when you're going to cure it really is before it becomes. Yeah, know. we got to get people to the doctor sooner. I mean, that's why we're seeing less ruptured aneurysms now, right? Because people are so much more aware. They're screening more. We have technologies now that are less invasive that can help. So more and more people are coming, patient awareness as well, and doctor awareness. And I agree with you. It's easier to treat a disease at its early stages than its late stage. So I think the goal of us, societies, and industry is to, you know, get the word out to patients when they have some swelling. Don't just come and give you the story. I've had this for 25 years. Give me a story. I've had it for four years, and we can help them better. So we want to end the podcast, Day Magazine. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of Vein Magazine, sponsored by Tactile Medical, the manufacturer of FlexiTouch and other products 
that help patients with lymphedema and phlebolymphedema. I want to thank Tom, Tom, and Peter for giving us insights into the modern management of lymphedema and phlebolymphedema. Join us next time for another podcast of Vein Magazine.